News Power Hour. Warm welcome to the Biz News Power Hour. I'm Michael Apple. It's Thursday, the 3rd of February. On today's program, our partner, the Financial Times, takes a look uh, takes a look at how the European Central Bank, the ECB, is looking to battle inflationary pressures. More on the Joe Rogan Spotify saga with the music and podcast platform's stock price nosediving. Then we move over to Ranmore Fund Management founder Sean Pesh in an interview with Justin. Then Biz News editor Alec Hogg chats to Transaction Capital's David Hurwitz. Stay tuned for those interviews. Here's Nadia Swat with your news headlines. BrightRock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. A new report from the University of Stellenbosch claims that school children in South Africa have lost approximately 1.3 years of schooling since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. This is equivalent to losing six and a half years of learning progress, the researchers said. The researchers tested grade three learners in 2018 and grade four learners in 2021 and found that the average 10-year-old in 2021 knew less than the average nine-year-old in 2018. They said that South Africa was on an upward trajectory post-2006, but the pandemic has wiped out all progress on educational outcomes. Changes announced this week allow schools to return to full-time teaching for the first time in almost two years. More civil action groups are joining the battle against South Africa's state of disaster, with non-profit Dear South Africa joining AfriForum in its court bid to force the government to bring the state of disaster to an end. Following further easing of restrictions this week, citizen and business groups are increasingly belligerent over the government's continued hold on civil liberties through COVID regulations. Business group Sakalicha is taking on NEDLAC, seeking to expose the group's role in key decisions and regulations relating to lockdown, vaccine mandates, and potential conflicts of interest. The national state of disaster has been in effect for almost two full years and has allowed the government to restrict rights with no parliamentary oversight. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has asked the Cabinet Office to look into allegations that Bain & Co. was involved in corruption in South Africa. Lord Peter Hayne had asked that Johnson frees all government contracts with a global consultancy, while SA prosecutors tried to recoup money paid to the Boston-based company for a contract it had with SARS. Bain has denied willfully facilitating or being party to corruption after the Zondo Commission found its conduct wanting in dealings with state-owned firms. The inquiry found that Bain had met with former President Jacob Zuma and former SARS Commissioner Tom Moyane before it was signed up as a consultant and it was clear it would be given a contract to revamp the tax agency systems before the start of the tender process. Back to Justin for the market report. The JSE All Share Index was marginally higher at 75400 In the price action, the market is holding up relatively well compared to U.S. counterparts. South Africa incorporated shares in the green, including Hyprop, Ital Tile, and Transaction Capital. And on the downside, large RAND hedge counters, Aspen and AB Imweb. 
are the losers for the day. In the currency markets, the rand is weak against all the major currencies to 15 rand 30 to the dollar, 20 rand 77 to the pound, and 17 rand 26 to the euro. Gold is flat at $1,801 an ounce. A Kruger rand will cost you approximately 29,000 rand. Brent crude is flat at $89.30 a barrel, and the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 560k. In the financial news, Facebook parent Meta Platform startled investors with a sharper-than-expected decline in profits and a gloomy outlook in its first earnings report since Chief Executive Mark Zuckerberg outlined a pivot to the metaverse. Meta shares plunged after the results were announced, dropping by more than 20% in after-hours trade. If shares drop that much when trading opens on Thursday, it would wipe more than $175 billion from the tech giant's market capitalization. The company said it expected revenue growth to slow because users were spending less time on its more lucrative services. Meta cited inflation as weight on advertising spending and estimated that ad tracking changes introduced by Apple last year would cost Meta some $10 billion this year in top-line revenue. This daily market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first-ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Thursday, February 3rd, and this is your FT News Briefing. The European Central Bank meets today with record inflation adding pressure on it to raise rates sooner, and Argentina's debt to the International Monetary Fund is creating new political turmoil. But first, if the backlash against Joe Rogan wasn't enough of a headache for Spotify, the music streaming company's stock price tanked after yesterday's earnings report. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Recently, several high-profile musicians announced they were pulling their music off Spotify. They include artists like Neil Young and India Ari, who have been protesting Spotify's blockbuster podcast, The Joe Rogan Experience. They accuse it of spreading COVID misinformation. Rogan has apologized, and Spotify has taken steps to contain the fallout. But is it really over? To talk more about it, I've got our U.S. media correspondent, Anna Nicolau, on the line. Hi, Anna. Hi there. So, Anna, before I get to the Joe Rogan stuff, Spotify's share price dropped as much as 23% at one point in after hours trading yesterday. This is despite the company reporting that their fourth quarter revenue rose 24% from the same period a year ago. Um, why did we see such a sell-off? Yeah, so the, the actual results were quite positive. But I think going into this, a lot of people were looking pretty carefully at their forecast for this current quarter, uh, just given all of the backlash and the controversy that's been going on the past week or so, and people, you know, threatening to delete Spotify and all that, uh, it would be this quarter when that actually would have appeared. And so for this quarter, Spotify predicts it will add 3 million subscribers compared to 8 million last quarter. So I think there was this kind of knee-jerk reaction like, oh, wow, like Spotify is actually in trouble. Yeah. And then on the earnings call yesterday, someone actually asked point blank uh, if the Joe Rogan drama would affect Spotify's business. Uh, what did Spotify say? Effectively, they just said, we don't know, <laughs> which I guess was kind of refreshingly honest. Uh, the chief executive, Daniel X, said it's too early to tell if there's going to be an impact in terms of people canceling and leaving for other services. Uh, the, the thing that they said that wasn't 
particularly encouraging was that their weaker forecast for this quarter did not include any potential impact from the Joe Rogan thing. So one of the ways that Spotify has responded to this is by putting content warnings on anything that that has COVID information or anything that may have COVID misinformation. Um, is that enough to stop the bleeding? I think it really depends who you ask. I mean, there were, I think, 200 something doctors and other professionals that had called on Spotify to just kind of do something in terms of, you know, moderating what's on their platform. From what I've been told, Neil Young and others, I don't think anyone was looking for them to, you know, outright ditch Joe Rogan. I think that they were looking for, you know, fact checking and things like that. It's not clear, though. I mean, I think we're still kind of in the middle of this story. We don't know yet if these artists will come back and the whole thing will blow over or if it'll kind of continue to snowball. The steps they've taken, I would say, are decent. I think a lot of people think that they should have happened a long time ago. So uh, considering how much money Spotify has invested in Joe Rogan, uh, would they actually cut ties with him? I don't see it happening just because they need him. Um, But I mean, I think the only way it could get to that point would be, you know, if tons of really big artists pulled their music from Spotify. I think short of that, it seems extremely unlikely they'll do anything beyond what they've done already. Uh, That's what Daniel X said yesterday. He, He called it very dramatic actions they've taken. And it does not sound like he's willing to do anything beyond that. Anna Nicolau is the FT's U.S. media correspondent. Thanks, Anna. Thanks, Mark. Just a heads up that Spotify wasn't the only tech company to have an ugly quarterly report. Shares in Facebook owner Meta dropped more than 20% in after-hours trading yesterday. It came after the company said its first quarter revenue expectations will miss Wall Street's forecasts by up to about $3 billion. Meta blames increasing competition. The European Central Bank meets today, and the big question is, will they raise rates earlier than next year? Now, the ECB has been slower to indicate that they will raise rates than, say, the Federal Reserve and other central banks. Brazil's central bank said yesterday they were going to raise rates. But new eurozone inflation numbers came out on Wednesday at a record 5.1%. Here's the FT's Frankfurt bureau chief, Martin Arnold, on how that might factor into the ECB's thinking. The signs that I get are that they will stick to their guns for now, and it'll be quite a slow and steady shift in their uh, policy stance uh, over the the next few months. If they are to uh, raise rates this year, it'll probably be um, towards the fourth quarter. Now, Martin, we should mention that the ECB's interest rate is below zero. It is negative, and it has been for a while Why is the ECB taking such a cautious approach to raising rates? Well, they believe that inflation is weaker in in Europe than it is in the US. And one way to look at that is if you strip out energy prices and also food and other volatile prices, then inflation in in the Eurozone is only just above its 2% target, whereas in the US it's much higher. The other thing to bear in mind is that for many years the ECB has been overestimating where inflation would end up. And inflation has actually been falling well short of its of its target. It's been struggling to get inflation up to its target. So now it, inflation has finally gone above its target. 
it's a little bit cautious to slam on the brakes and start raising rates aggressively because the risk is that it then falls back into the pre-crisis trend of stubbornly low inflation, which is a problem just as excessively high inflation is. That's the FT's Frankfurt bureau chief, Martin Arnold. Argentina is in a political crisis after a pivotal lawmaker quit this week. Maximo Kirchner was unhappy with the government's plan to restructure $45 billion in debt owed to the International Monetary Fund. Kirchner was leader of the Peronist bloc in the country's lower house of Congress. Here's our Latin America editor, Michael Stott, with more on Kirchner and the debt deal. He's part of the hard line of the Peronist group who believe that the original loan from the IMF should never have been made. It was something that broke the fund's own statutes because it financed capital flight, that it was done for electoral reasons to fund the previous president's election campaign, and that therefore the IMF shouldn't be repaid in full. And that's really why he's fundamentally opposed to it. The IMF, it goes without saying, reject those allegations. Now, Michael, Maximo Kirchner also happens to be related to the country's powerful vice president, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, right? That's right. Yeah, he's her son and the scion of this political dynasty. His father was also a past president. So uh, he has a lot of clout within the radical wing of the Peronist Party. So what does this mean for President Alberto Fernandez? No relation to Cristina. Can the deal that he signed hold in the face of this kind of opposition? Well, this is the big question, Mark. I mean, he's been clearly very severely weakened by it. It's it's not clear whether he'll be able to muster the support he needs in Congress to get this passed. And the opposition actually now have come out and made life a little more difficult for him by saying that unless the government party is prepared to vote for this unanimously, the opposition are not prepared to follow suit. And that the opposition would, in that case, ask the law be struck out, which, which says that Congress has to authorize a debt deal. Because, of course, the opposition want the political cost of this deal to fall entirely on the government and not on them. So what does it mean for Argentina's economy if the deal collapses? Yes, it would be very serious, Mark. It would be a default on the IMF. So the situation is that Argentina is running out of money. It's running out of foreign exchange. The net reserves now, the ones that are actually accessible to the government, are very, very low. And the government has to make payments to the IMF of 2.8 billion by March, and this year a total of 19 billion. And it simply doesn't have the money. So unless it can restructure this debt with the with the fund, it, it will have to go into default with the fund. So what happens next, Michael? What are you looking out for? Well, I think we're we're watching whether the Peronists can muster enough agreement internally to get a deal through. They haven't finished negotiating with the IMF. So last Friday's uh, agreement was an outline agreement, and there's still some important gaps in it. So there's a big question about whether the government has got the stature and the authority to conclude an agreement and get its its own party to back it. And at the same time, of course, markets in Argentina are very nervous. The the parallel dollar, that's the sort of black market dollar, is is running at almost double the value of the officially controlled dollar, which is a sign of just how nervous markets are. So there's also the risk of a markets crisis. So that's something we're keeping a close eye on too. Michael Stott is the FT's Latin America editor. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news.
Sean Pesh, Ranmore Fund Management founder. Sean, after about a week of consolidation, we've seen huge sell-offs yet again in some of the big growth names in the US. Meta, PayPal, Spotify, to name a few. Let's start with Facebook or Meta, rather. One of the fangs, a big component of the US indices, therefore big exposure to all passive investors. This is something that you've noted, one of the large risks about being passive for a while now. But before we get into that, what were the main drivers for a 22% sell-off in after-hours trade? Yeah, thanks, Justin. Um, look, it was a big move, and I think more than just the percentages, because 20%, you know, it sounds big, but I think these the problem is these companies are absolute giants. And if you look at if you look at Facebook, I mean it's fell $200 billion after hours. So we haven't even seen that wiped out from investors' savings. You know, PayPal lost 50 billion the day before, 200 billion since July, Netflix 65 billion last week, you know, Tesla 100 billion. So these are massive numbers and they are really hitting investors and investors are going to find that out in the next, uh, in the next fact sheet. So, and the problem is, you know, so, so what, what drove it? Well, there are a few factors. The one is that the, the, these companies are so large. I mean, if you think that there are 7.8 billion people on the planet and you take out China, and you take out the very young and you take out the very old. You know, Facebook with their 2.9 billion users, it's pretty saturated. And look at the, the daily, month, daily um, number of users um, in every region, pretty much every region, it's flatlined or down. And, uh, and, not, and that's slowing users. Now, then think about how much time those users are spending on the platform. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm spending less time on Facebook than I did a few years ago. And my children aren't spending any time on Facebook. It's all Snapchat and, and TikTok. So, you know, the, the problem is these companies are just so big. And, and just to give you an idea, I mean, Apple, look, Apple grew revenue 11%. Amazing. Okay. But they offered no guidance. Uh, Apple's, you know, it's a megalodon. They, they, their revenue in the quarter was $124 billion. That is six times Procter & Gamble's quarterly revenue. And if you look at just their growth, their 12 billion that they grew by is twice McDonald's entire quarterly revenue. You know, so how on earth do you grow off, off that? And you can, you can bet on this growth continuing. You can be my guest, but, but you know, Facebook and PayPal should be a warning as to what happens when it stops. That's the first point. The second point is, you know, there's been structural change and, and it's interesting because advertisers can't get access to the underlying um, the underlying users because Apple has changed their iOS availability in terms of what allowing um, people like Facebook to get access to the underlying users. And, and what surprises me is Zuckerberg's been telling everybody about this. And, and they even spoke about it at length last quarter. And I don't know whether it's all because so much money is held by passive funds or the short sellers have been blown out of the water. But I find it just staggering that people are surprised by this. You know, and 84% of brokers still rate Facebook a buy. So... You know, so yeah, so I think that's that's the that's the the next point. Um, inflation, that's another problem. And you might think, I mean, it wasn't long ago when all the fund managers out there were saying, "Don't worry about inflation. All you got to do is be in great companies, and they can pass on inflation." Of course, what Facebook said to us last night, or Meta, is that their customers are are being affected by inflation. And when you look at the likes of Procter and Gamble, which had sales up six percent, but it had cost of sales up sixteen percent, how do they? How do they make up for that cost of sales? Well, they have to try and do that from, from SG&A, and part of that is advertising. And so if you've got less advertising money to spend and you now have more options because you've got Snapchat and you've got 
you know, TikTok and you've got uh, Pinterest and all these guys, Etsy and all these guys, well, you're going to, you're going to spread it around. And so, so inflation is affecting these companies indirectly. And of course, we've got Amazon tonight. And last quarter, last quarter, Amazon was complaining about steel prices because that's what they build their warehouses with. And, and what do their vehicles use? Their vehicles use fuel. And, and what about the wage inflation that, um, that, that they were out there scurrying around when everybody was ordering stuff online and they were paying top dollar for, for their employees? And there's always a bit of a lag because you're not giving them a wage increase and it comes through. So I wouldn't hold my breath for Amazon tonight. And every single analyst of the 59 broker analysts rate Amazon a buy. So. Sean, this is something that you've been talking passionate about for at least the last year, the active versus passive debate. Passive is known as the safe haven. You invest in the indices and the indices only go up. However, of late, these big, large caps, there's a, a concentration risk that is attached to the indices. Do you just want to talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely, um, Justin. And, and the problem is, you know, this is an issue. It's not just, it doesn't just affect the people who are living in California. You, know, you look at how much money South Africans have taken out overseas, either directly or have invested directly in, um, directly into feeder funds in South Africa, uh, it's been a tricky time because, as I've said before, the wind's been blowing in one direction for 14 years. And, and the only, I mean, there are very few funds out there that don't own these large companies, very few, because it's been a career risk not to. You know, things have just been getting better and the P's just been going up and interest rates have been low and it's been really hard. And even you even finding value funds, funds that call themselves value, that purport to be value, who have capitulated and own these companies. And, and, and you know, that's often the sign that you're at the you're at the turning point. Um, I mean, we have none. We have seven, eight percent in technology and I. I'm happy to talk about you know, which one and why. And, uh, and, and the problem is, so these, these, you know, it's not just the direct funds and they've gone offshore and, and bought fast passive funds. And, and the thing with passive funds is, I guess you save a few basis points on the fees, but, you know, who's happy about having saved 30 basis points or whatever the number is when you're staring into the abyss with these large companies that are down by these numbers? So, so I think it's a case of everybody's been sitting at the restaurant ordering very expensive bottles of wine and uh, because, you know, quality costs and now the bill's arrived and everyone's rushing off to the bathroom trying to avoid having to pay it. But the bill needs to be paid and it's been paid. And it's not being paid by value investors. I can tell you that. Zuckerberg has cited the metaverse as the next big growth driver for Facebook. What exactly is the metaverse, Sean? I've struggled to get my head around it and I don't completely understand. And that's why I'm going to come to you. Well, I mean, you know, hopefully you're in good company then, Justin, because I mean, what was the image? It's sort of, it's some imaginary thing that you go surfing with Mark. I mean, I don't know, to be honest. Uh, and uh, it's supposedly the next big thing that's been driving the, yeah, but I, I'm the wrong guy to ask. And unless it makes money, I'm not interested. <laughs> and, uh, and right now it's still at the investing stage. And what do they talk about technology? They, talk, they don't talk about the leading edge. They talk about the bleeding edge. So uh, we'll wait until that's further down the, the line. But there's going to be a land. I mean, if it is a big thing, there's going to be a land grab. And they're not going to be the only people who are going to be competing for that space. Sean, something that is close to your heart, valuation. The sell-off means Meta is now trading on a price to earnings of 17 times. That's not overly demanding, is it? Well, I don't believe that. 
you know, to be honest, that's a that's a forecast. And and let's just look at how how bad this could go. Okay, so there's a couple of points here. You, know, you look at the youth of today. What do they What do they spend time on? They spend time on Snapchat. And uh, well, Snapchat's market cap is 52 billion. Meta's is 700 billion after the fall. Okay. Um, and the second point I'd also make is that a lot of investors out there talk to free cash flow yields. And with free cash flow yields, you add back stock-based compensation. So that's that's the big thing because they say, well, we don't pay our staff, you know, staff cash and the share options. But then what they have to do is they have to buy back those shares from those once those options have been exercised. And that consumes a huge amount of free cash. And it's quite interesting. I mean, Tesla's shares are up 5% in the last year because of all the share options that have been exercised. Snapchats are up 22% in the last three years. Microsoft spent half their money last quarter on uh, buying back stock just to offset the, the share option dilution. PayPal, PayPal spent 80% of the cash flow that they say they generated. I mean, it's about 100% of the cash flow I think they generated, just buying back shares to offset the dilution. So all this cash flow that these companies are generating is actually not going to shareholders in the form of dividends. It's not going to companies to reduce the shares out there. It's going to pay employees indirectly. And so I don't think they're cheap. And I don't think, you know, 17 times earnings. I mean, who knows? I mean, just, just to give you an idea, you know, we've got, um, we've got Hewlett Packard. It's our second largest position. And if you look at what Microsoft's been saying and AMD have been saying, the PC market is really strong. Okay, so, so they've grown earnings 67% over the last year. Uh, there's fewer PC manufacturers and printer manufacturers now than there were a few years ago. Chip shortages actually give them pricing power because they sell the most expensive components, but it's a nine times earnings. And, and it's a $40 billion company. So don't buy a passive index thinking you're going to get big exposure to Hewlett Packard. You're not. And, and the other important thing is they've bought back 30% of their shares in the last three years. So, you know, you, if you want exposure to these dynamics and these growth dynamics, you don't have to get it via the big companies and you're not going to get it via the big indices. You're only going to get it from active value. Sean, I'm talking Netflix, Meta and PayPal now. Let's put them in a basket. All mega caps, all hit by 20 to 25 percent following earnings. But Sean, this hasn't got anything to do with earnings or earnings misses or it does somewhat is this more of a culmination of all macro and micro headwinds coming together at once? Yeah, I think that's well put, actually. Um, I mean, if you look at those companies together, they add up to about 5.5% of the index. Okay, That is 50% more than the weighting in all energy companies in the index. And Exxon released their results the other day. It went up 7% two days ago. So, you know, you can just see everybody's on the wrong side of the seesaw. I mentioned this a few times. And I think you're getting inflation, valuation, slowing growth, um, the investor concentration. And I would encourage, I would encourage, I put a LinkedIn and a tweet out this morning. And if people can't find it, by all means, have a look. There's a great interview with Jeremy Grantham, which I think it's 37 minutes. It's 37 minutes well spent. You don't want to be invested in the market without listening to that grandmaster, as I call him you know, with more than 50 years uh, of investment experience and and some of the things he talks about. He has been around the block, but I think hanging your hat on a low forward earnings multiple on some earnings that might or might not, you know, transpire in a year's time is is a dangerous exercise. So when people tell me Meta's cheap on 17 times earnings, it's only cheap if those earnings materialize and it's only cheap if those earnings make its way to me as an investor. And if not, it's not cheap. 
Looks like Jeremy Grantham's going to have to replace 40 minutes of the Bachelorette this evening, Sean. <laughs> Sean, Sean, what are your thoughts on Apple and Alphabet's investment propositions following their earnings? Positive. Do you feel that there's space for pain there? Uh, Justin, look, Alphabet's results were phenomenal. And if there was one tech company that I had to own, and you know, it would be that company. Uh, uh, Apple, great results, 11% revenue growth. As I mentioned earlier, it's just, you know, it's going to be hard. Elephants, it's elephants don't gallop. Um, but, but it is just a massive company and it's just going to become ever harder and harder for them to grow. Uh, so yeah, at least, but, but certainly Alphabet, I couldn't find a chink in that armor. Amazon's earnings tonight. One feels like the market's at a tipping point, an earnings miss and a gloomy outlook could throw the market off edge. What are you expecting? Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Um, I'm not expecting, as I mentioned earlier, I'm not expecting good things from Amazon. And I'm amazed that 100% of analysts uh, rate the company a buy. I, I think you've got wage inflation, you've got steel inflation, you've got fuel. I think people are out shopping a little bit more. Um, I think there's more competition for the advertising budget. So I find it hard to believe uh, the content costs have gone up more. So for Amazon Prime, we've seen that with Netflix. So I find it hard to believe that Amazon is going to beat on the upside. And actually, last quarter wasn't so good anyway. So it's rather ironic that, you know, at the same time as Jeff Bezos is uh, unveiling his massive ship that they're busy building, that they have to dismantle some bridge in Holland to get it out. Um, but, uh, but I wouldn't hold my breath for Amazon's results tonight. And we certainly don't own it. David Hurwitz, it's really good to have you in the business studio. I was looking at your share price since you took over as CEO in 2014, compound annual growth rate of 24.2%. That's even better than Warren Buffett. <laughs> uh, I mean, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. We, uh, we don't often get compared to uh, Buffett, who is um, undoubtedly the best investor in the world. But, um, you know, we've just focused on we don't think of ourselves as investors. We think of ourselves as, as owners and operators of assets. We focus heavily on buying well. We focus heavily on running the business as well. And the market must do what the market does. And so far, it's liked what we've done. Jeez, so it, really, it really likes what you've done. Seven Rand 80 when you took over as CEO from Mark Lamberti. I'm sure we're going to have a chat about him in a moment. 44 Rand 50 today. So lots of happy shareholders. But just going back with you. I was interested to see that you're really a Joburg boy. Yeah, so I'm, I'm born and bred in Johannesburg, uh, have always lived here, have never thought of living anywhere else. Um, you know, business has always been here, so as an adult, I've always wanted to be in business. And, um, you know, no thoughts of immigration, no thoughts of semigration. Our businesses are really South African businesses. Uh, we've looked at opportunities all over the world, and I think um, if you're looking to invest in businesses and then grow businesses, South Africa is a great place. So you know, don't run away from it. Is my message to to you know entrepreneurs out there? Yeah, it's it, it's very difficult to find a more entrepreneur friendly place in the world. There's BE, which is a big challenge, but outside of that, my goodness, the opportunities here are enormous. Yeah, I think they're great opportunities. Um, I mean, uh, uh, our businesses have, are structurally positioned very well in South Africa, and I think if people look for those type of of positions, uh, I, I mean, just SA Taxi, you know, public transport does not work. The minibus taxi industry is dominant. It operates well. 
Um, it's not dependent on government. And we saw that, what, in uh, 20 years ago. And we've just continued to push that. And it's a structural element which will be there forever. I always get the question, when will bus and train displace minibus? And um, we've only seen the opposite. Is this the only job you've ever had at Transaction <laughs> Capital? No, I haven't had many jobs. First of all, I'm a, I'm a CA, so I did my articles. Uh, Adverts. Um, so again, Joburg. Well, yeah, yeah, I studied, I studied, <laughs> schooled in Joburg, studied in Joburg, Adverts. Um, came out, did my articles at a small firm which was called Kessel Feinstein, oh, which yes. is now part of BDO. David Shapiro was there as well, wasn't he? I think he was, yeah, but, but before my time. <laughs> I should have well so. Before my time. Um, uh, and then out of coming out of WITS, um, I went into, in actual fact, uh, I found some entrepreneurial guys who were backed by Michiel LaRue, and they started something called Borland Financial Services. Most people wouldn't even remember Borland Bank. Um, and Andre Dupe, uh, Andre Duplessis, yes. who has just left Capitec, was also involved as kind of a shareholder representative. Um, and we really was kind of a structured finance business. I was there for, I think, about 10 years. Um, eventually, HCR bought that, um, and I wasn't a shareholder anymore. And the founders of Transaction Capital contacted me and said, no, you're an entrepreneurial guy. You can't be on a job. You need to be building something that you're you know, a shareholder in. And they had, at that time, only our risk services division. It was called MBD. Um, it was actually structured as a legal firm. And, uh, you know, from there we started building. I joined them and we started building. We bought the taxi business, uh, which they had started in African Bank. We bought that out of African Bank. Um, uh, we bought a payment services business. We started a, a micro lending business together with some other entrepreneurs called Bayport. And, um, yeah, it's, it's really been a, a very entrepreneurial ride. But as you say, uh, only really two jobs in my life. It's extraordinary, Michiel Leroux, Boerland Bank, the Capitec connection, they're all, they all came from uh, Boerland Bank, Gerry and, yep. and uh, Jan Stassen, and, uh, Rian Stassen rather, and of course Michiel. And you also had a connection with them. And if you look back at the South African market over the last 10 years, if there were two stocks you wanted to be invested in, the one was Capitec and the other one was Transaction Capital. So... Um, I presume, and you having been the CEO of Transaction Capital for eight of those ten years, you might have picked up a few things from your interaction with him. He, he sounds like an extraordinary person. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know if he would, re, you know, really remember me being there when I joined. That was straight out of articles. I was twenty-four, um, but of course, you know, watching those guys, uh, I learned a lot, um, and then. Uh, I mean, if I really think about uh, about transaction capital's journey, you know, it's it's really been yes, I've been the CEO and I'm a big driving force there. But you know, we do have three founders: um, Johnny, Jono, Mark Mendelovitz, and Rob Rossi. We always call them JMR, whether it's Johnny, Mike, and Rob, or Jono Mendelovitz Rossi. Uh, the JMR works either way, um, you know, and they are highly entrepreneurial people. Why aren't one of them the CEO? Uh, you know, they, they're great uh, investors, they're great strategists, um, but I think probably one of their biggest strengths is that they know what they're good at and they know what they're not good at. Um, I'm more of an operator um, and able to kind of drive performance through the business, whereas, uh, you know, they operate at a, at a different type of a level. So, um, and in truth, um, 
the three of them have all got different skills. Uh, you know, some of them are more quantitatively minded around credit risk and well, normal risk, accounting, tax. Uh, others are more focused on um, strategy. So even within the three of them, they've got different skills and all do different things. Um, but they felt that, uh, you know, I had the best um, skill set in terms of running and driving the business uh, from an operational perspective. So, so JMR saw you and the work that you'd done before and the three of them got hold of you. That was how you joined Transaction Capital. Yeah, they, they had, had experienced me in uh, Bullion Financial Service became a business called Metal. They had experienced me there. They knew me. Um, and uh, when Johnny Copeland bought out Metal, the first phone call I got that morning when, it, when that article was in the press um, was from Johnny Jorno, who said, you know, it's time for you to come and, and join us. And at that stage, it was a family office. What about Mark Lamberti's uh, relationship with Transaction Capital? He was the former CEO of MassMart, then came in as CEO, and, and you took over from him. You did work as CFO under him for a yes. period. Yes, so Mark, so, so really what happened with um, Mark was that we brought him in, or the founders brought Mark in, um, because what we had was a highly entrepreneurial business, um, but businesses kind of all within a similar sector or related in some way to credit, uh, high stigma businesses related to credit and financial services. Um, but because we were so entrepreneurial, they weren't pulled together into a group. So, so when Mark came into the business, his mandate was to actually pull these entrepreneurial businesses together, create proper governance, create proper structure, um, whether that was legal structure or um, a people structure, and eventually bring it to listing. So he did a great job of that. Um, none of us at that stage you know, knew about proper corporate structure and big business. We were just hard drivers of, of businesses and, and good entrepreneurs. And, and Mark really kind of put that corporate beat into the business and put the business in a state that it could be listed. Uh, he joined in about 2007. It was, as I said, a, a loose agglomeration of companies with similar shareholders, but actually all owned separately, but by similar shareholders. So, um, you know, I was a shareholder in Taxi together with management. The three founders were a shareholder, but the shareholdings were all different if you compared that to our risk services division. And then Bayport had their own management team. We were a great home for entrepreneurs. So we would work with management teams, people who had just started something and help them grow it. And, you know, so similar businesses, similar spaces, similar shareholders, but different shareholder percentages. So to pull all of that together with all of these minorities and put it into a group um, was pretty difficult. And Mark did really well at that. Um, he joined in 2007, as I said. We then tried to list the first time in 2010, weren't quite ready. When I say we tried to list, we did all the work and then decided not to go. So um, that was one process. And then we came back in 2012, the very beginning of 2012, and we managed to do everything in six months. So we started pretty much as the, about this time of year, you know, late January, and we listed, I think it was the 12th of June, if I recall. So intense work. And uh, we got it off. And that was really the end of, of, of uh, well, that was the deliverable for Mark. He then ran the business for two years um, and felt it was, you know, time to then hand over. And he, he really did a great job. Yeah, it was an interesting career for him because after Mass Mart, and it's interesting, the, the 
how you've unpacked this. And then he went off to Imperial to do something similar, to split yeah. those into two, two units. But the, the culture that you have at Transaction Capital, and you've, you've kind of uh, hinted at it a, li- a little bit already, is finding entrepreneurs and growing them. W- was it a deliberate intention to go into financial services in, as, as a focus? And again, getting back to yourself and, and the JMR grouping. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, we're all we're all highly quantitative people in terms of uh, maths and stats and finance. Um, so that's always the facts been, matter. The numbers facts matter. Matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't uh, you know? Don't put the calculator down. Is you know that's the type of thing we often talk about. Um, so we all came from that world. Um, as I said, I was an accountant and then involved in structured finance. Um, uh, the three of them were all involved in the early, early days of establishing African Bank. So, you know, they had this vision to go into high stigma businesses and create. What do you mean by that? Uh, you know, businesses either with um, that, that had a, perce- a certain uh, a negative perception. So if you think of our businesses, I, I mean, their ri- original business was um, they were part of the team that established African Bank that, you know, unsecured lending at that stage, microfinance. Uh, um, what do they call them, shark, um, loan sharks, sharks. you know, that that type of a stigma, Uh, minibus taxi. Wow, that is a a stigma. For many people, that would have been a a, a huge leap to go into that area because of the perceptions. Debt Debt collection, second-hand cars, (laughs) you know, so so, um, high stigma businesses and then um, putting the correct uh, risk mitigation in place, putting the correct governance and corporate structure in place, such that you can, first of all, earn consumer trust or, or client trust. And then second of all, you can then attract institutional capital. And that then allows you to grow the business. So that was their vision in micro lending in the 90s. Um, they had bought and started businesses in that space. And they had a vision of creating a bank that would do that. That was African Bank. They happened to leave um, in 2001. So well, well, well before um, you know, African Bank got was into trouble. Was that with Leon Kirkinis? Was yes. he involved there? They were and, part of that. And yeah. and Gordon, Gordon Shuckett. Gordon Shuckett. Uh-huh. That's exactly right. Okay. So they actually crossed paths with Gordon. Gordon. They had micro lending businesses that they put together with Gordon, and then eventually together okay. with Leon. So that was that was kind of their their um, their beginnings, um, which are financial services driven, and then they started. Both of our businesses that we own now, uh, the taxi business and the collection business or the risk services business, they started uh, with management teams in African Bank. And when they exited African Bank, they they, uh, took the um, risk services or or debt management business, or they bought that out with them. Uh, And then a few years later, African Bank said, listen, we're focusing only on unsecured lending. Um, You know, this taxi business is, you know, not really core, different credit committee, secured lending, different type of collection mechanism, we're going to sell it. And uh, that was when I joined, just before just before we bought uh, SA Taxi. And what African does Bank. that taxi business do? Nowadays? Yes. Well, what uh, SA Taxi, what, what, yeah. what is so, it? I mean, so we would describe it as, uh, I'm going to use fancy words, a vertically integrated minibus taxi platform. Um, essentially, what it, we think of it as a platform, and, we, and a platform that we can scale into other asset classes, which I'll talk about in a moment. Um, but essentially what it is able to do is because of the data set that it has from our tracking devices, 
fancy word would be telematics, from the telematics data that we have and the mobility data that we have. So, so you have tracking devices in the taxis? In the taxis, yeah. Okay. And because we've got that, 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 that data set uh, or, or, or those taxis giving us data points every few seconds of the day, we are able to understand, number one, which are the highly traveled routes and the not-so-highly-traveled routes. Um, we are able to understand uh, which operators are good and which operators are bad, and that then allows us to make decisions. We overlay it with other type of data, such as commuter density. Um, uh, you know, By the way, of example, when the Mall of Africa was built, that changed commuter patterns. So we overlay it with a whole bunch of other uh, uh, data sets and, of course, vehicle value data sets. Um, and that then allows us to either choose the correct route. So if a taxi operator is looking to run a route, we can say, well, we know how many taxi operators run that route. We know how well they do on that route. We know if that route is overtraded or not. And can, you know, can this operator now enter that route? So that's so it's the, data. Data. It's all about data. Yeah. That's oh, the goodness. one, that's the one. In, in an industry that most people would think is uh, impossible to get data from, You've Absolutely. got it all. How did you view what happened in July, the riots in July? Certainly the feedback that I've got from many people on the ground, I have family and friends, I'm from KwaZulu-Natal, yes. was that taxi owners, your clients, were very instrumental in protecting when the police were not. Yeah, I mean, we spoke a lot with Santaka, um and actually NTA, I think they just. I think the taxi industry is an extremely misunderstood industry. From our perspective, uh, you know, we view it as kind of the heartbeat of our economy, and um, most South Africans love to hate it. First of all, uh, and sometimes there's very good reason for that. Um, but also, most South Africans think of it as a fringe industry, which it really isn't. It's probably a fifty billion rand industry. Um, I mean, we calculate that it, can pay, that it pays close on 10 billion rands worth of taxes in the form of fuel levy and VAT. So it, it is actually part of our economy, um, and they've been misunderstood for a long time. And I think this was really an opportunity for them, first of all, to say, you know, we, we're proudly South African. We're going to step up and do what we can do. And also, they, you know, they, uh, there is some self-interest there because they need people to move around. And to the extent that businesses are being burnt down and uh, you know that just kills uh, commuting uh, uh, in the country so you know they felt that it was wrong and that they should try and you know stand up to it and they well, did a good job indeed they did unfortunately Alec I mean what uh, not not three not three or four weeks later where there was all of that taxi violence in the Western Cape so you know a shining example of what they could do mm-hmm. and then unfortunately you know a, a quick reminder that um, you know, the industry can sometimes be, be difficult. It's still developing, still evolving, and a difficult business, but you guys have appeared to have cracked it. Yeah, if, uh, I mean, I wouldn't say cracked it. We've done well there. We've got a long way to go and a lot to do um, for us and for the industry, quite frankly. Um, but, yeah, if you, if you can understand the risk correctly and if you've got the right data to understand that risk on the one hand, and then on the other hand, if you have... Um, the correct relationships, so the the taxi industry is a shareholder in our business, mm. um, and the correct intention. We're trying to formalise the industry more. We are trying to improve public transport. We are trying to give black entrepreneurs a chance of having a, a, a great business. Um, so I think if you pull that all together, oh sorry, and then the physical side to manage the physical asset. Mm. So you know we kind of broke it up in pieces and said, how can we come at this correctly? 
um, and that's worked well for us. We buy cars. When you first invested in there, uh, it appeared as though you would be doing something similar to SA Taxi. In other words, having a, a shareholder, a minority shareholder, um, taking owning about 75%. But I see from your latest annual report that you now have an option to take them out 100%. What's the thinking on that side, and, and why indeed did you identify We Buy Cars as the prime play? Um, I mean, so first of all, uh, I think we were lucky there. As everyone knows, you know, NASPAS uh, wanted to buy that asset, and the Competition Commission blocked that. So, you know, that gave us an opportunity to get in. Otherwise, we would have missed it. Um, so, you know, sometimes... You know, we were very lucky, but I sometimes, you know, kick myself that we missed the initial opportunity. So were Dirk and Fan, uh, Van der Valt, were they not courting you or were you not courting them? Did you discover not, not, they not were for that, sale? Not at that point. You when know, Aspas yeah. was turned down. Wow. Yeah. So, it so, is lucky. So it did, it, did happen, it did happen late. And, yes, we loved a lot of things about the business. First of all, as I said, we always thought of – we think of ourselves as a great home for entrepreneurs. We can work well with entrepreneurs. Um, you know, guys like Dirk and, and Fawn, um would never come into a corporate. So you spoke a little bit about culture. The the type of values and culture that we have is a, an ownership culture. We don't think of ourselves as professional managers. We think of ourselves as owners. We think of ourselves as partners. We think of ourselves as entrepreneurs. You know, you're not coming into a corporate culture. Um, but then on the other hand, you have all the benefits of uh, governance and institution that allows us to access capital correctly, et cetera. Um, so, so there was immediately a great understanding that the culture would work. I think what the NASPAS uh, deal would have given them was uh, the ability to grow the e-commerce side of the business probably a little bit quicker. Uh, besides, despite that, we've done very well in growing e-commerce and then online inquiry and all of that. Um, and what we saw that we could bring them was the finance and insurance side or the F&I side. And the very exciting thing that we see there is you've got a fantastic trading business. Again, high stigma business. Um, we're operating on the older side of vehicles. So, yes, we compete with everybody. But if you think of Motus and um, Barlow World and Bidvest, they're selling new cars and then secondhand cars, maybe three, four, maybe five years old, uh, but nothing older than that. We're selling cars, uh, our average cars, pretty much nine to ten years old that we sell. So we're going into that space where, where, where kind of our peers are um, independent uh, operators, no brand, low customer service, low customer trust, and we're, of course, now coming in with a trusted brand, a very well-known brand, and people are feeling very conf- you know, comfortable and confident to either sell their car through us or buy a car through us. So... That's kind of what, they, what they've delivered, and then they've delivered this unbelievable tech platform to be able to value a car um, and buy it online and do that quickly and conveniently, and then being able to, to sell it on an e-commerce platform. So they had done an unbelievable job of developing that, and what we felt we could bring is the finance and insurance side. And what we're looking at, because we've got this big stock of vehicles, um, yes, we can offer all of the type of products that a bank could offer. But what we can also offer is something on the line of cars as a service. So, you know, a person doesn't have to buy a car for five years and enter into a five-year contract. He could come to us and say, um, you know, I want that Toyota, and we'll say to him for whatever, 1000 
900 rand. You'll get the Toyota with the for 12 months with the finance, uh, with the insurance, with the warranty, with the scratch and dent or rim and tie or whatever you want. Um, and uh, we can then at the end of 12 months, you can bring the car back. I mean, we've got 8,000 cars that we're selling and buying every, actually 10,000 that we're buying and selling every month. And you can upgrade to the new BM or whatever it might be. So a very digital based and flexible car arrangement is where we want to try and get to. That's the end game. It sounds very disruptive because the, the, the perception is that when you buy a car, you finance it, you keep it for five years, you hope that it's going to retain its value for the bullet payment at the end, and then you might upgrade thereafter. But this is a, a different very way different. of looking at it. And, it's, and it is because we are buying and selling cars on aggregate that are nine years old every 10,000 of them every month. How do you know the so, cars are going to run, that, uh, that they're going to break down? Again, so it's data again. So um, uh, when you are buying and selling a car like that, uh, you know, you're, learning, you're, you're learning what it's worth. Um, once we've bought the car, we then put it through what we call a DECRA. Uh, we will get a DECRA report on that car. Uh, and that then tells us everything about the car. But it's post the fact. So sometimes we will get it wrong. But most of the time you don't. We do so. So you put a telematic in in those cars as well, uh, the black box too. Not yet. Stuff. Mm-hmm. I'll talk about that in a moment. So so um, you'll do an online inquiry. We'll then take the data on that car, run it through our database, and we'll provide you with a very firm price. With sometimes within minutes, um, you'll then get a call. Someone will come out and and actually physically look at the car, often within hours. Um, just to verify it is what it is. And hopefully our bars are good enough to pick up if there are any problems. Most of the time they do. They can then, they will then pay you before they drive off and money will be in your account. So seamless process. And we assume all the risk, no comebacks or anything like that. We'll then take it to one of our centers. Uh, we'll do a DECRA report on the car and see exactly what the condition is. That's now a detailed inspection, but that's very valuable for the buyer who's going to now buy the car from us. And all of that will go, the car will get washed, photographed, and that car will then go onto our website with a DECRA report attached to it. And someone can buy it with a high level of confidence because there's full disclosure. Just to close off with, and from an investor's perspective, we've seen the growth in the share price uh, almost uh, match the growth in earnings uh, over a period of time. And then suddenly last year, it's like the investment community woke up to transaction capital being a, a wonderful place to put their money because the share price doubled and hence your compound mm. annual growth rate uh, surging forward. Doesn't that make you nervous? Um, I remember Mark Lamberti saying to me, um, you know, working for these three founders is, is never easy when you're working for, you know, hard-driving entrepreneurs. And Mark said to me, listen, the market will be a much more difficult taskmaster than the three of them. I, I really try my best not to look at the share price. I think as we opened up this discussion, I, I actually said, you know, I, I try and drive a good business, you know, and uh, invest well and then grow the asset that we've invested into. And I think we're pretty good at that. And then we'll let the market take care of itself. So I try not to look at that. But yes, it does obviously create pressures or, or, or tension for me as a CEO. But How much really- time do you spend talking to investment analysts? Again, one of the kind of strengths of transaction capital is that because we've been able to partner with such good entrepreneurs, um, I mean, you couldn't want anyone better than Farn Fund the Vault running that business. So you keep him in there, 
Um, and we didn't discuss that question on the on the puts and calls, but I would prefer it if Vaughn stayed in for longer, quite frankly. Okay. Um, and as we get to know each other, let's see what happens there. But, um, you know, so, so, so I'll be very involved with the CEOs running their business, but we have proper teams and proper entrepreneurs running any of our, any of the businesses that we own, even if like in TCRs where we own 100%, um, all of those people running those the, the businesses are staked either at TC or in the underlying business itself, and um, and I'm engaging with them intensely, uh, and it does then give me a little bit more time than the average CEO would have to engage um, with external counterparties, debt investors, shareholders, regulators, uh, or the like. So but capital, I try to keep it. Mm. I try to keep it less than twenty five percent if okay. I can. Is capital allocation then the thing that that keeps you awake at night? Yeah, so so I think if you look at what we do, capital allocation uh, is huge. Um, risk management is huge. Setting strategy is huge. Um, but you know, you'll talk to you'll talk to certain CEOs, and they'll say, "Yeah, you know, we've got um, uh, you know very structured engagements with board meetings and alcos and risk committees and credit committees." And yes, we have all of that, but we only own three assets. Um, my biggest wealth is in TC stock, and I feel as I'm an owner of those assets. And uh, my offices, uh, we actually don't have a head office, which is something I really love. Um, we've got an office at SA Taxi. We have an office in our risk services business. And hopefully in time, I'll have a desk for a few people and a space in We Buy Cars. And when I wake up in the morning, you know, I think, which way should I go? We Buy Cars. Taxi. Literally. Yeah. You don't have it in your diary. I'm going to oh, go and I'll see follow, you. I'll yeah. follow my diary. But I mean, I can go wherever I want. But I'm not going to. There's no Ivory uh, Tower uh, or anything like that. And, you know, we're in the businesses. Um, we've got very formal engagements with the CEOs. But um, I'm talking to all of them every day. So you've got the three legs. You said earlier a fourth leg is possible, but you're not chasing anything at the moment. There's no that's not that's not the way you guys go about things. No, we we, we are focusing intensely of grow, at at growing what we've got. There is a deliberate strategy to look for others, but um, you know I can't say if that would happen or not. You know because deals are you know there's no second place. You either do it or you lose it. This this reminds me so much of uh, of the structure of Berkshire Hathaway to a large degree. Tiny head office, although they've got 85 subsidiaries. So they're yes. obviously they've been going for 60 years. But it's, it's that, it's almost that structure. Is there anyone or any business that you guys at Transaction Capital have learned from in the way that you've structured the operation? I mean, we've learned a lot from lots of people, but I don't think there's anybody that we've particularly tried to replicate. Buffett is, is very different in that, um, you know, he invests and then he, Hands off. hands off. We're all, I shouldn't say always, we like to have a big stake in an asset and we, and we have to be able to develop that asset. You know, we won't just buy something because we've bought well and we think it's got a good growth trajectory. Yes, it must have all of that, but we must be able to do something. Like in We Buy Cars, we were able to, we, still to be seen, but, you know, we will be able to deliver the finance and insurance uh, arm and grow, you know, grow the business even more without having fun and Dirk to take the eye off the ball. They can continue with e-commerce and uh, physical rollout of infrastructure and trading of cars, and we'll build that for them. Um, so we haven't really, we haven't modeled ourselves uh, on anything. Um, I guess we've built our own, you know, our own, uh, our own ethos and our own model mm. um, just by, you know, by learnings on the way.
Well, that's all we've got for you this evening. Thank you for joining the Biz News team this Power Hour. We're back next week, leaving you in the capable hands of Carrie Adams for our Friday feature, Carrie's Corner. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.